Welcome to Heads Up Missouri. To keep you informed and to keep the conversation going, we Missouri legislators will podcast from your state capitol. As women legislators from across the state with unique perspectives, we hope to provide insight to the state policy process. So welcome. Hi, I'm State Representative Tracy McCreary. I represent Olivet and Creek Corps in St. Louis County. I'm Lauren Arthur, State Representative for a district in North Kansas City, the best district in the world! <laughs> of course. I'm State Representative Deb Lavender. I represent Kirkwood and Glendale in the St. Louis County area. Hi, I'm Senator Kiki Curls. I represent the 9th District in Kansas City in Raytown, Missouri. And I'm State Senator Jill Shoup, representing all our parts of 22 communities in St. Louis County. From now on, you'll find our podcast on Squarespace, Stitcher, and iTunes by searching for Heads Up Missouri. So welcome to Heads Up Missouri. The House this week has started the process of pushing through dangerous gun legislation. Um, it's started in general laws. Representative McCreary, you're on that committee. Can you explain a little bit about HB 630, which would eliminate gun-free zones, and House Bill 1068, which supposedly is a fix to last year's loophole, a domestic violence loophole in Senate Bill 656. Sure. I'll start with House Bill 630. It um, would eliminate gun-free zones. The bill sponsor seems to think that people that are, and, and children and such that are in gun-free zones are just like sitting ducks. So he thinks we should not have any gun-free zones, including at like casinos, bars, restaurants, city halls, you know, libraries, you name it. That, that And I think he's delusional, quite frankly. I think that some think that they could be heroes, you know, like some somebody's going to come and, you know, try to kill a bunch of people and they're going to whip their gun out and just take care of it. And I just think it's delusional. When law enforcement officers who carry weapons all the time are continually practicing and training and still find active shooter situations quite challenging. Mm -hmm. So I just think uh, it's a very, very dangerous bill. The testimony was just kind of nauseating to me. Oh, and it would also mean that there could be guns all over campuses, yeah. too. And so it kept, the conversation kept going back to sexual assault on campus, as if a woman that had a gun on campus could somehow, you know, use that to protect herself. And, you know, there was never one mention of, like, why don't we talk about men and, you know, and, uh, you know... They're perpetuating violence. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So it was just, um, it was just a really, really tough hearing to, to sit through. And they also kept tying it back to uh, domestic violence victims, too, as if, you know, having a gun with you is somehow going to keep your abuser away from you. Well, the here's re- what happens in domestic violence. A woman has a gun and finally uses it and kills her husband, and guess what? She, she goes to jail. For life. Right, exactly. right, for life. Yeah. We have examples of that all over uh, Missouri, yeah, let alone exactly. the nation. So, yes. Yep, exactly. Right. And I don't know, I, I came in late if you mentioned it, but doesn't this bill... Uh, hold the institution or the business accountable? Well, that's a separate bill oh, that, separate uh, that okay. we did not exec on, which means we didn't vote it out of committee the following night. But yeah, we had a bill that would basically say that if a business put up, that businesses would not be able to prohibit um, guns from their um, Well, I think businesses. we can, except then I have the liability right. of somebody. So I have a small business, 
And if I decide to put up a sign that says no guns here, this bill would make me liable. Right, if something happened. If something happened right. inside my clinic because I didn't let you, Senator, have a gun to be able to protect yourself inside my, cl my right. clinic. So we have this climate in the building where we're trying to reduce liabilities for businesses, except for now we're creating like a whole new like classification of challenges and such. And I, it, was, it was one of the craziest bills I've heard all year. Also, we keep talking about like using women essentially as a scapegoat for why we should expand gun laws. But we did that last year with 656. And one of the biggest complaints about that bill and that like Representative Engler even spoke about on the floor and then was like, oh, okay, we'll deal with it next year is this massive loophole for uh, perpetrators of domestic violence being able to have guns, which is incredibly dangerous. And domestic violence uh, advocates across or like prevention advocates across the country are appalled by this legislation. That was supposed to be a priority this year, and we're just now seeing it in the process. Right. which means it's not going to go anywhere. It's no. you know we're four weeks away from the end of session, and um, you know for something that can be so deadly for victims and their families, I'm really embarrassed that we haven't that we should have uh, we should have fixed this loophole week one when we were here. And Sheila, not only are we just now getting to it, Representative McCurry has a bill that would fix the loophole. The one that we heard in committee this week is worse than what we have now. Yeah, I would rather leave the loophole in place from Senate Bill 656 passage last year than have a fake fix go through because the fake fix, this House Bill 1068, uh, sponsored by Representative Donna Lichtenegger from Cape Girardeau, um, has this bizarre um, piece, bizarre clause, yes, um, where um, the... They, the uh, abuser would have a 24-hour notice before he would have to turn his firearm or weapon in. And I just think that's crazy. I mean, that is so... We, we know that when when abusers feel like they've lost control, whether it's a divorce is about to be final, a restraining order's been issued, they're about to lose custody of their kids, whatever, when they feel like the gig is up and the control is over, that's when they do very desperate things, including killing people. So this 24-hour um, notice before you have to turn in, in your gun is, I just consider it a countdown to death. It's a, and right. it's an awful, awful time bell. Bomb. Time right. bomb. Ticking time bomb. Right. Yep. Right. And when did you hear this bill in committee in the House? There was a domestic violence situation in San Bernardino, California, um, and, you know, this guy that, that did the shooting in San Diego or San Bernardino at the school should never have had weapons. He was a felon. So how did he get a weapon? So literally those two bills that you yes. heard happened in practice right. in California where they have stricter gun laws. So what happens in a state like Missouri where we don't have very strict gun laws? And this is continued right. and like accept, accepted by the legislature mm -hmm. or by policymakers. Right. Not just accepted, pushed in a way that when you oppose it, they make you feel like you are so wrong to even... The emails I'm getting are not only should I pass this bill, but I should pass it as soon as I can so we no longer have gun-free zones, so we can all be safer in the mm -hmm. state of Missouri. Right. There was a Twitter thread that I saw that highlighted the number of black women who are victims of domestic violence and aren't talked about at all. Mm -hmm. And we saw in St. Louis that the ACLU is suing because a, a woman in um, like Maplewood Maple was called 911 multiple times and then was deemed a nuisance and was kicked out of her apartment for domestic right. violence. Um, and so I see that we're not trusting victims and we're not trusting their... Like, processes to make them safe instead we're exacerbating 
more violence against them. It's already hard enough to pick up the phone and call for help because it's basically mm-hmm. you're having to admit publicly to somebody um, that there are some serious challenges in your relationship. And, and then to think that that can be used as justification by a city to deny a woman of domestic violence victim housing is just appalling. And we've known about this. We, I say we, I'm involved in the domestic violence advocates community in St. Louis. We've known about Maplewood for a long, long time. We've tried to work with them to do the right thing, and they've refused, and that's why the lawsuit's moving forward, and I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So um, if you do have strong opinions on this bill, you know that you should reach out to your representative and also the Speaker of the House and encourage them to not move it forward or to not vote for it. You have been a real activist in this arena. Mm-hmm. So, will you tell us about some of the work you've done with? Sure, some of I've been really involved with Safe Connections, um, which is the oldest and largest domestic violence and sexual assault service organization in St. Louis. We've been around for um, about forty years now. Um, I we work to reduce the incidence and impact of domestic violence and sexual assault. And so, I've been very active. I've been a board member. I've been a volunteer for years, which is why I'm so passionate about this issue and and firsthand kind of see the correlation between guns and domestic violence and sexual assault. Right. So, you know, if anybody out there is listening who, heaven forbid, knows someone or is a victim of domestic violence, they need to call Safe Connections. Yeah, we have a 24-7, 365-day-a-year hotline. Um, It's 314-231-2003. Quick edit. The number is actually 314-531-2003. So, um, but yeah, just reach out. There's always help available 24-7. And, and it's not just for victims to call. It's, it's really important. Like somebody listening to this might know someone that they think's in trouble. You can call a hotline too. They have also advice for you how to help mm-hmm. as a friend or a family mm-hmm. member. It's not just for the victim to call. Because, you know, sometimes I've had people call me wanting to know what to do. And, you know, you can call the hotline too. You don't have to be the actual victim. You can just be someone that cares about a victim. I think it's really a great opportunity for us to use this to, to put a message forward that says yes. you don't have to go through this by yourself. Right, yeah. exactly. Can I put something in for Safe Connections too? Last year when I was at their event, I don't know how the topic came up. They had a lot of young ladies there, and I said, where are the young men? Mm-hmm. But they do go yes. into the schools and educate young men mm-hmm. on appropriate behavior with women. Right. That's so awesome. they are yeah, also that we have a trying huge to prevention work on arm. It. Exactly. Yes, it's called Project Heart, where we work with uh, men and women, boys and girls, in any situation, any setting we can get to them, to try to teach them about what healthy relationships are and are not. So, right. And we also have a project called the Purple Tie Project, which you would like Deb Lavender, since purple is your favorite color, um, where we work exclusively with young men to help young men to help uh, get them to understand the role they play in being, uh, you know, an active bystander and, and making sure that they don't just, you know, sit idly by when when inappropriate things are happening. Happening, we teach them how to speak up and stand up for for victims. I think that's terrific because yeah. again, where we always focus on women, kind of as being. The ones when women get pregnant, it's their problem. Mm -hmm. It's nice when women get abused that there's uh, uh, people looking at how typically the abuse comes from men Mm -hmm. and that we're trying to prevent that as well. I think that's great that they do that. So I want to pivot a little bit and discuss, uh, do a little quick update. Um, Last week we saw the Senate, we saw men uh, putting the onus on women for having, wanting to have abortions. The crazy comments that were stated got picked up all over the country. Teen Vogue picked up on this, Huffington Post, Refinery29, Bustle, Pop Sugar, Jezebel, and Vice. And that's pretty amazing that mm-hmm. the that senators who don't think that their statements have repercussions are not, like, I doubt they care, but 
millennials across this nation are seeing what happens in state legislatures and how it impacts women. So I'm really excited that that got picked up. Also, uh, Senator Curl's farmer's market bill, which this language was weirdly attached to, uh, it passed through without the Hmm. abortion stuff. (laughs) Without the abortion stuff, certainly. And I don't think it was ever the intention to amend the abortion stuff onto it. Yeah. It's just put on hold um, to, I think, frustrate some people while Mm. the abortion conversation and the really partisan, extraordinarily conservative, almost... It was pretty racist, Crazy too. and racist stuff yeah. uh, was spoken. and um, But Senator Curl's bill went through with very little fanfare uh, because it's really such an important piece of legislation mm-hmm. for seniors, low-income seniors, who can access uh, vouchers, if you will, uh, to go to farmer's markets that is, uh, you know, fresh produce grown in our communities uh, for healthy eating mm-hmm. and healthy living and also to support the, the farmers and the people in the area who are growing that produce. Yeah. So it was a great piece of legislation. Doesn't the um, legislation give almost doubles the money value, and it is a grant that we're getting? Yeah, and so it, it's it's tax money that all of us are paying in to the federal government anyway. So it's a program where we're basically just bringing money back home to Missouri right. and helping seniors get some much-needed nutrition. I think that one about one in four Missouri seniors is is hungry, goes hungry. Mm-hmm. And this, I, this farmer's market bill that Senator Curls put forward and Representative Len Morris put forward yeah. over on the House side is a step in the right direction. I think it's a... And it's a win-win for Missouri's number one industry. It's going to help Missouri farmers get their produce to senior citizens who will enjoy it and get nutrition from it. It's a win-win. So speaking of things that are not win-wins, the Missouri legislature has really done its best to become like the epicenter of conflict of interest. (laughs) (laughs) Like the exact opposite of Mm -hmm. the farmer's market bill. Um, So we have seen five different bills that I can think of off the top of my head that are glaring examples of conflict of interest. We have Senate Bill 5, which guts the Manufacturing Protections Act. Senate Bill 43, which is a, uh, makes it harder to sue based on discrimination. Senate Bill 88, which is a veterinarian's bill, which I'm, I'll have Senator Shoup talk more about. We have House Bill 157, which deals with physical therapists. Um, and House Bill one, uh, sorry, 1116, which deals with banning, uh, banning municipalities from banning plastic bags. So I want to quickly talk That's about... back. It's back. It's It's back. (laughs) Um, A little bit of context for that. In 2015, House Bill 722 was this original bill. The sponsor was the former president of the Missouri National Grocers Association. Introduces this bill along with, like, I think the petroleum industry as well. Right, because petroleum is used in the production of those plastic bags. A lot of petroleum is used. So we wanted to ban a ban on plastic bags. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, exactly. And it wasn't just, like, and that like spiraled into this whole like omnibus anti-local control bill, which is where the now conversation around minimum wage is coming That's from. Right. right. So what I thought was interesting in 2015 is it wasn't just big cities who had a problem with this. Like the city of Arnold, which I'm still not sure where it is on a map, they put out letters <laughs> saying they didn't want this bill. <laughs> so Arnold is, <laughs> sorry, it's, it's south uh, south of uh, oh, St. Louis okay. County, so it's not... And, and Down it's, Highway 55. Right. And okay. it's, it's not as, as small as it may sound. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big city. It's a, oh, okay. Right. I yeah. just had never heard of it. It's in Jefferson <laughs> County. Right. You can see it when you're going on Highway 55 South because they have a big uh, water tower that looks like it would have been the Green Giant's flashlight at one point. It's okay. like a water tower that looks like a flashlight. All right, can I just say one thing about water towers for a moment yes. to add a little levity to the conversation? <laughs> so... Uh, when my husband and I were driving to Joplin one time, you know, there's a big water tower as you go through oh, Bourbon. Yes, yes. It says Bourbon. It's and not he a water tower. And says to me, no, no way. <laughs> 
as if what was in there was Wait, it's, bourbon. It's filled with bourbon. That's what I always thought. <laughs> it would <explain> a lot. <laughs> All right. So, also, anyway. So, anyway, um, 116, so Senate Bill, or sorry, House Bill 722 from 2015 got struck down. So, Dan Shaw, Representative Dan Shaw, decided to reintroduce it again. It hasn't gone anywhere, but that, to me, is, like, the epitome of conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not, this year, it's new and improved. So where they they separated it from the minimum wage bill, yeah. he's reintroducing it. So it not only bans the ban on plastic bags, it bans any municipality from having anything to do with packaging of anything in their store. So it's now not just a plastic bag. So now maybe a community wants to require a deli mm. to put their food in recyclable products mm. or degradable products. Right. This includes oh. that and says you can no longer have any um, influence on how they package um, products from that grocery store. So much for the free market. Mm-hmm. Right. Or for I local control. I don't understand how that control. could work. I mean, what about things that are made in, in, in delis, for example? That What, what well, are they saying I, about this? So I think well, the grocery so there's store... There's some alternative containers out there. Like, yes. there's a restaurant here in Jefferson City that I love to go to, Grand Cafe, and the, the, the container that they send your leftovers home in is a biodegradable, like, papery yeah, kind of product right. that you could just put right in your compost pile, and it just biodegrades. Right. It has no petroleum in it. So right? I guess, like, so. from a technical standpoint, how do you enforce that? How do you enforce? A, well, how do you block a restaurant well, no, from ordering that packaging? You don't block the restaurant from doing that. You block the city from telling right. them they need to. That's what's in his um, bill. Right. So right. So the, a city could could want to uh, reduce their in, their footprint at the landfill. Right. Because right. the, the city maybe owns the landfill or it's a yes. county landfill, mm-hmm. and so they could they could. Um, say that we're only going to have takeout containers that are made out of biodegradable yes. products that break down in the compost. Restaurants, and grocery stores, mm-hmm. whoever. Right. right. This bill would say that a, 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 lo- a political yeah. subdivision couldn't do that. No, I'm over that. So Creve Corps, for example, would mm-hmm. be a perfect example because over the years they've tried hard to reduce their carbon footprint. Right. I mean, that's been one yeah. of their... Um, a lot of cities have that in their master plan. A lot of cities do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's an additional way to lessen the carbon footprint. Right. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, this bill this just, is, it, it's so insulting. You know, these, we're trying to micromanage other elected officials and tell them what they can and can't do. And until I, we don't, then, well, until it affects us oh, yeah. personally, well, mm-hmm. uh, that then means, we don't. Well, that being said, Senate Bill 5, which has brought a lot of uh, vocal opposition against, like, how it's been, I guess, played out, um, it comes from both sides of the party, or both sides of the aisle. So Senate Bill 5 would gut the Manufacturing Protection Act um, and is sponsored by the Senate Pro Tem, and we all kind of knew this, but a lot of the media is now piecing it together and being really vocal about it, that a mega donor, David Humphreys, gave the Speaker Pro Tem a bunch of money before, or Senate Pro Tem, a bunch of money before the election, and then he introduced a Senate Bill 5, which would essentially protect that mega donor's company. Which is a roofing company. Exactly. In the area where the Senate Pro Tem is from. Yes. Right. Yes. So I won't go into detail about what the bill is, because that is in our tort reform episode, but just know that... Um, this mega donor gives a lot of money to the Senate pro tem before the bill is introduced. He introduces Senate Bill Five. He gives a hundred thousand within a week and right before um, campaign contribution limits go and kick into place. For a lot of people, it seems like pay for play. Representative Ellibrecht in the House has been saying this over and over again, and most recently, Senator Sylvie, a Republican, has come out saying that it looks corrupt, but he's not a he's not a law enforcement official. He can't do anything about it. So can I just pay for play? means that a donor is paying money 
to be able to have legislation that benefits them introduced into the state house. Or maybe the opposite sometimes is to pay to stop something too. True. So which I think True. you know is is what we also see here too. There's but some that the the thought is that legislators literally go to donors and say, mm-hmm. or I guess it could come from somebody in the community. If I give you a hundred thousand dollars, will you do this bill for me? Whether it, it and favors I, I them or protects them. I don't think I it's think, ever that blatant. I don't think it's ever that blatant either. No, because and. that's just too blatantly illegal. I think what it is, it's more subtle than that. You know, money buys access to mm-hmm. people. And if someone is your top donor, um, you know, you're going to, and then you just happen to say you don't like something or you do like something, I think um, I think it's it's subtle. But but just as wrong. Just I'm as wrong. cynical today. I'm not quite sure it's that subtle when you're <laughs> just two of you sitting at a table having a drink with no other ears around you. So maybe that's my cynicism coming out today. Yeah, I, I just, I don't yeah. know. We're, we're all allowed to have our feelings on this. But, yep. um, you know, however it happens, it's um, it appears that it's happening yep. and it's wrong. And especially when leadership is just so blatantly thumbing their noses at the Missouri Ethics Commission. Yes, um, which is an enforcement agency that the legislature has the ability to give teeth to. Mm -hmm. So uh, another form of conflict of interest where why would you give the agency room to get you in trouble? Um, And then Senate Bill 43, which, again, we've done a lot with. Like, we had an interview with uh, Rod Chappell from the NAACP about it. Um, It's coming to the news again because news media is really picking up on on Senator Romine's discrimination lawsuit. Um, They've finally seen the court case, which... It's pretty disgusting. I don't it know is. if either of you have been able to read it. Yes. Yeah. Yep. We had a. We took a. Well, look and at I think it. it's coming back into the news because it made it to the House. Mm-hmm. So a House committee heard the bill last week. We heard it in Rules Committee last, last night, mm-hmm. and so I think that's again why um, media is catching hold of it. We certainly pointed out the conflict of interest that Senator Romine has that he has a business that's being sued for discrimination. This bill does everything to raise the bar to prove discrimination. I don't haven't seen quite as a direct correlation to self-interest as this bill mm-hmm. and find it incredibly egregious that it is moving forward mm-hmm. at the pace that it is. Um, this but, and this is a nonpartisan. There, there are folks on both sides of the aisle that see the problems with this. So I'm, I'm quite proud now. You know, until we see the final vote. But I, I, I've talked to several of my House Republican colleagues who are equally disgusted as we are. So yes. um, that, that gives me hope. It really does. That it won't pass the House. That it won't pass, and that you know that there is still you know people are still able to see through some of these things. But that being said, um, there was the Black Caucus had a press conference this week, and Representative Roberts said that the Speaker wanted it out clean so it didn't have to go back to the Senate for a conference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious how, if the Speaker and if the floor whip have already just gotten those votes, even if there are like ethical problems with it. And I'm curious I, how that works. I worry about that, too. A passing vote in the House is 82, and they have 116 members. So even if you peel 30 members from the Republicans who have the same ethical issues with this bill that we have, it still passes easily. Well, I, I think that the Republican leadership in the House should 
be hesitant to put this bill forward because it's going to put a lot of their members in a spot where they're going to feel like they're going to feel pressured to vote yes on a bill that's awful and on a bill that their constituents do not support. So, you know, if, if I was in Republican leadership, I, I would not want to put my members in that kind of a spot to have to, to force a vote on this I bill. I agree with you, except for that in the committee last week, any amendment that came up was immediately shut down. It passed through the committee easily. In my attempts last night to have the bill sent back to committee mm -hmm. so we could revet it was turned down very succinctly, yeah. and then the vote to pass it out of committee was completely along party lines. No, uh, Representative Dogan voted. Oh, pardon me. You're yes. right. So we had one Republican. Thank you for remembering yeah. from that. From St. Louis County. From mm -hmm. St. Louis County. Excellent. And in the original, yes. the committee of origin in the House, uh, Representative White also voted with Repo with Democrats. You know. So. I'm so glad people are remembering better than I am today. Well, Thank you. we've had some long days in our, yes, in our defense. Yeah, um, and I get really excited when I see bipartisan yeah. opposition. Um, and they do, both of these fine gentlemen deserve a shout-out on that. Because it's, yes. it's much harder than it sounds to, to buck the rest of the people in your party when you're voting. And I almost find it harder in committee because it's more, it's very obvious who's voting yes or no. Yeah. Um, in the large... Ch chamber, house chamber, you know, you just push a button and it's a little more, a little more, you're a little more private. So I really wish that there was some sort of procedure to have, to force people to speak in every committee. Cause I look at committees and people are on their phones. They like leave and come back. Like they're talking to other people and there's almost no attention paid to the bill itself. It's like, mm -hmm. you already know how you're going to vote. And I would rather see like an engagement and a discourse and I, and committees go run long anyways. Right. So why not just add 30, like, why not add 30 minutes? Like, I know. And it's just a, have a conversation. It's a little worse than that when people come in late and perhaps we're already voting and they don't even necessarily know what bill we're voting on. Mm -hmm. And they look and they say, Representative, how you're voting? And they just look right back at the person recording the vote and say, I, that they don't even necessarily know what bill yeah. we're voting on. Yeah. I mean, there's no screen anywhere, so it's no, not like everybody right. knows what bill, which right. is frustrating if right. I can't hear. If, yeah. for instance, like the chairman mumbles the bill number, right? I have to like pay attention to what's oh, going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, so it's like it's a really frustrating process, and there's minimal room for a policy conversation. Well, and I still, I mean, I, I honestly think that the more complex the bill is or the issue is the less time the least time we spend on it and then the simple stuff because we know how to ask questions on the simple stuff we'll like beat that stuff to death you know but it this this building is just bizarre to me you know well and you're right and, and it is the complexity and i'm going to say that's one of the challenges with term limits in ag policy last year i think we took an hour and a half and talked about honey right. and the labeling of honey right and yet you serve on utilities right. which is some of the most complicated stuff it we'll is. have it deals with monopoly monopoly utilities and um, you know billing structures and the public service commission and everything and those bills go and flying you'll, through you'll spend 5 minutes oh, on yeah. the bill yeah unbelievable yes yep yep so uh, the next bill actually uh, Senate Bill 88 passed through the Senate last night, and I was paying attention to the House, not the Senate, so I wasn't sure. So 88, isn't that your district? Ah, yes. Okay. Fighting 88. So um, <laughs> this bill says that veterinarians, and this bill was put forward from our by our appropriations chair, who also happens to be a veterinarian, and this bill says that veterinarians will not be responsible for what has happened to an animal under their care uh, after two years after that animal's 
death or I guess visit to the last visit to the veterinarian. So what it's doing, it's limiting the, the power of somebody to say, hey, what we've learned over time is that you did these things and should have done these things. And so it, it just takes away a, 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 the pet owner's ability to um, have his or her day in court. Well, it's not just pets. I mean, we're, we're, we're suburbanites, but this also impacts oh, right. um, Missouri's number one industry, the agriculture, the agriculture industry. industry. And, you, you know, yes. it also limits their ability to... to uh, well, and that opens up a whole new category or different category. You have cows, obviously, horses, but in our cattle these days, especially dairy, you truly can pick the traits that you want to have in the next litter from a dairy cow mm-hmm. off of a catalog. So now perhaps if you had a veterinarian participating in that and you got a cow that you didn't want, is that part of how you could trace that back I up? I have no idea. That's a really good question. A, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it it's a bad It's just limits liability for yeah. the veterinarians. And again, you know, being put forward by the veterinarian. And, you know... I know we talk about that, and I know we talk about people looking out for their own interests. So there is a balance here, because I do think that people in the industries in which they work sometimes know the most about uh, that particular topic area. As long as you're putting forth legislation that is positive and promotes the well-being of the, without you personally gaining from it, but something like this, obviously, if you're a veterinarian... Uh, you won't be able to be sued over a longer period of time. So it's definitely a benefit directly to the veterinarians. Well, so. like I know Hawaii has statute like this and some other states do as well that require you to recuse yourself from mm-hmm. a bill vote if it has something to do with well, your Well, we industry. have some things in statute dealing with this. I remember oh. in the good old days when I worked here before, um, when we, uh, I'm looking at Senator Shoup because we met through our work on uh, the Million Mom March years ago. There, there were people that used that own gun shops, for example, that recused themselves from voting on things that would directly benefit them financially because they were gun shop owners. But that was like you know twenty years ago. Well, you can do that, and um, I, you can still do that. But what happens? You also, I think, have the ability at this point in time to just declare. Uh, so you can mm-hmm. declare through the journal. You can write a note in the journal that says, "I have an interest in this." Now that I've made that public through the journal. I am able to participate in the conversation and vote. The re- and the, also, the other reality about recusing yourself is, how many times have we heard someone say they're recusing themselves from the vote, but they participate in the discussion? Right. When you are recusing yourself, right. you are supposed to not participate, not mm-hmm. try to put your mm-hmm. perspective forward that advantages you in some way. Right. You're supposed to stand back and let the rest of the body exactly. deliberate and then take the vote. So I haven't seen... Um, The only recusal I've seen this year was on the pay raise at the beginning of session, which you may recall. Was there another one, Jill? I think Senator Whelan, who has insurance, may have recused himself of something one time. I think there was one other time in the Senate where someone did recuse himself, but it's pretty, pretty rare. I remember it happening last year, too. I know, I think... Senator Riddle, who's a retired teacher, doesn't vote on things that affect mm, the, the teacher's teachers. retirement system. Well, and I'm going to segue, in, and I didn't have that definition of, of recusal. Um, the last one I think that's on your list, Sheila, is House Bill 157 from Frederick. Do- Dr. Frederick, Representative Frederick, is an orthopedic surgeon, and he has a bill that would allow him to employ a physical therapist in his own private practice. So as a physical therapist, I'm pretty familiar with this. So in Missouri, 
20 plus years ago, there was a statute that physicians may not employ physical therapists because we felt that then the physician would be apt to refer more patients, generating more business. So the physician is now going to bill for the services, pay the physical therapist as an employee. So 20 years ago, the legislature said, no, physicians, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So this year, Dr. Frederick, an orthopedic surgeon, and in, in the realm of physicians, orthopedic surgeons refer for physical therapy probably more than any other of them do. Makes sense. Is right. putting the bill forward that says, oh, by the way, I can employ a physical therapist. There's another bill right now, and I think Representative Redmond's carrying it. I don't even know who's carrying it that says physical therapists can have direct access. So today in the state, I need you to have a referral from a physician for me to provide you physical therapy. Which is kind of a barrier. Because that it's means, a huge and it, it can barrier. be an, an added expense for folks. A lot of us yes, a lot right. of us lucky enough to have insurance have high deductible yes. insurance. So mm -hmm. then you're paying a full price to go to the doctor to when all you, you actually need is physical therapy. Right. And for me it's a it's a, a significant barrier, especially in a state where chiropractors who have the same education background that physical therapists now have, they don't need a referral to get in there. And the thing that's so sad is that if I go, if you go, anybody goes to massage therapy school, mm -hmm. in nine months, I can get out, open a facility next to a physical therapist, put a sign in the window that says, I treat back pain, please come on in, mm -hmm. and you don't need a referral to go see them at all. Interesting. And so the limit on physical therapists, mm -hmm. but now coming back to the point, somebody else is carrying that bill. And where I just heard a new definition of recuse, I would get up and speak in favor of that bill and would never vote for it, never vote on it. And last year we had a bill that affected physical therapists. And not only did I have my letter in the journal saying I have a conflict as a physical therapist, I would only and did vote present mm -hmm. in that I didn't vote either way. And the bill would not financially impact me in any way. It was something that in the future we hoped that different states can share licensing information. But still, because mm -hmm. it was inside of my field of practice, I chose not to vote on well, that. Well, and really, true conflicts of interest arise out of monetary gains. Yes. So what you're doing is trying to be go above board, yes. above and beyond, and say, I know that it looks mm -hmm. as if uh, it looks it. There's an appearance of impropriety. There could be. There could Even be an appearance. Could be. And so I'm going to ensure yeah. that I yeah stand yeah. down and don't and don't mm -hmm. vote on that. So I think that's going above and beyond. Monday night. We ended up passing the um, Senate Bill 313, brought forward by uh, Senator Andrew Koenig. And interestingly, so Senator Andrew Koenig, as we talk, to, talk about conflicts of interest, and I really don't know if there's a conflict, mm -hmm. I will tell you that um, Andrew has five children. Two of them are foster kids. Mm -hmm. And so and um, he hom they homeschool their children. So what's interesting to me about this is... Um, this is an, uh, well, it deals with education. I won't call it an education bill because I always think of those in a more positive light than I would think of this particular piece of legislation. But quite frankly, at the, at the end of the night when we finally uh, sat down, I feel like I was uh, the last woman standing, the last mm -hmm. person up on the floor sort of trying to fight this battle. And, you know, it's a battle that I could have gone through the night fighting, but there was no point to it. This was going to pass. And so... 
Um, let me tell you a few things that are in this piece of legislation, which is really a two-part piece of legislation. So one of them in the, in the first part is a funding mechanism through tax credits that is supposed to allow children with disabilities, uh, children in foster care, and it added later through an amendment, uh, children of military personnel to access money provided by private, so-called private tax credits. We'll talk about that in a minute. Hmm. This is this is really a pretty complicated bill. I so. actually heard the Senator Koenig was trying to do away with tax credits. Well, isn't only that an fund, interesting? Only to maybe fund this one? Well, exactly. Okay. So somebody uh, who says that they're yeah, against tax credits, right. but now we're using them to fund a program that actually takes money, in essence, what it ends up doing is takes money out of general revenue that the legislature would determine how to move forward and determine what its priorities are and allows, as all tax credits do, allows people on the, allows people on the outside to say, I'm going to put my money in and get, in this case, 100% tax credit mm-hmm. back. 100%. So you put your money in, but then you get to deduct it from your taxes. Mm-hmm. And if you put in more than your own personal tax liability, then you get a check back from the state to make up the difference of what you didn't need to, de- to deduct in terms of your taxes. So let me give you an example. Let's say there's a mega donor from St. Louis who wants to see vouchers That's in our not schools. Rex Singfeld, is it? I'm not, I, no, I don't know, I'm okay. just, this is just a, you know, hypothetical. Okay. my right. hypothetical. Go back to This could be, yeah, you know, I don't know this. All right, so a mega donor in St. Louis who wants to see vouchers in education, who wants to sort of undermine public education as we know it today. And this donor um, provides the cap, which is now $25 million on the tax credits for the first year. So this donor donates to this fund $25 million. And then these organizations come in and um, they are nonprofits that are utilized to facilitate moving children from, helping children move from the school district that they are in to some other place that they think that they can get a better education by providing them each with a $6,200 voucher, which is the amount of money yeah. that um, per pupil expenditure under the current foundation formula. Remember in 2005 when we put it into place, it was $6,700 per child. Hmm. It's not that our needs haven't grown. It's that our legislature has chosen to cut off the top of our foundation formula, the first 400 to $450 million. So now we have a smaller formula, so the amount per child has been reduced from 2005 to 2017 by this $500 per student. I know this is really complicated, so if you want to jump in and ask a question, I hope you feel welcome to do that or to break up no, the No, I'm monotony. learning a lot. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast with all of you is because I learn a lot, so keep, keep yeah. going. This is really All right, but please stop me if you have a question along okay. the way yeah. or just to say, what? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this child, and, you know, children with disabilities Mm -hmm. take a lot of extra resources Mm -hmm. because they have a lot of extra needs. Mm -hmm. So a child that, for example... Which part of the reason, and that's obvious, like when when, uh, those of us that live in St. Louis County look at our tax bill and the breakdown where our tax money goes, money goes to the school district, 
but then there's a separate mm-hmm. line item of money that goes to the special school district, which right. is a, an entirely separate school Taxing district. district. Yeah. Well, didn't the governor address this in the state of the state? Yes. Where he specifically mentioned the need mm-hmm. to have equity between differently abled and able-bodied students or like students without learning disabilities and whatnot. Yes. So he did. And he said that he wanted um, special opportunities for kids in foster care mm-hmm. and special opportunities for um, children of military personnel. Mm-hmm. So this is right out of Gov- Governor Greitens' state of the state, no question about it. This is his bill that has moved through the Senate. Mm-hmm. So um, again, I think I could have stood up for 17 days and it wouldn't have mattered. This is a priority that's going to pass. But so what happens is the reality is $6,200 to aver- to educate sort of the average yeah. child yeah. That, mm-hmm. in the general education classroom. Um, that's the amount. But when it takes two to three times that amount to help educate a differently abled mm-hmm. or, as many of us often say, a, dis- a, children, mm-hmm. a child with disabilities. Yeah. So what school, what private, what parochial school mm-hmm. is going to accept a child with his or her $6,200 voucher mm-hmm. to pay to be educated when we know there is no way that's going to cover the cost mm. of a child with special needs. Okay. Right. So, all right, so that's that's one part of this. So we can say that this is about these kids with different or special needs, but the reality is it is not. So my question is, um, I'm just going to bring it back to charter schools, for instance, where there's minimal state oversight. And I think last year there was a bill passed that um, made it illegal for charter schools to discriminate based on income. But I feel like there are very few parameters under which like private or charter schools operate. So how does that work with these vouchers? Where it's like, can you be discriminated against or like said no to based on, it may be not. Like, I'm just well, really it's interesting that you work. ask that question. So in the, this portion of the bill, in this portion of the bill, there is something that says that a child cannot be discriminated based on race, National origin or disability? No. I tried to add that as an amendment. Race, color, or national origin. So when I saw that and we're dealing with children mm. with disabilities in this very section, I said, well, it seems to me, it doesn't have that. And I said last night, I offered an amendment. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that it would be appropriate mm-hmm. to include that they cannot discriminate based on disability. That amendment failed in the Senate on a roll call vote. So if you want to see who voted against that, it's easy to see. This is what's interesting when I listen to the Senate on bills that I might not be fluent in. There is no contextualization of a bill. There's no conversation around, let's dissect this bill piece by piece and explain what it would do to school district A and what that looks like for student Q. Um, And then it becomes like rather inaccessible for constituents who want to listen to the debate, for instance, to understand what it is. Right. So, you know, oftentimes I try to stand up and go through the bill section by section with with Mm -hmm. people for that reason Mm -hmm. to make sure. So I'm not always clear on whether my colleagues have have always had the opportunity to read a bill in its entirety. And especially when we get like, I don't know, this was the second or third Senate substitute Mm -hmm. on the floor, Mm -hmm. which meant that Portions of it, at mm-hmm. least, were always new to us. Mm-hmm. So I like to try to go through those things. Yeah. But but even I did not get all the way through this bill. I mean, I was dealing so much with the first part of it, and I think I had four or five different amendments that I put forward that failed. So this $25 million that we talked about, so this one donor 
who donated, let's get back to him mm-hmm. for a minute, or her, who donated $25 million. And this person's tax liability, what he or she owed in taxes, was, was only $10 million that particular year. <coughs> so what happens is the state writes this donor a check for the other $15 million because this yeah. is 100% refundable tax credit. So it doesn't even carry over to another tax year. They no, would actually get a they check. they actually get that check back. Let me just say that this bill that's going forward has, in my view, nothing to do with um, kids with disabilities and kids with special needs. What this bill is about is opening the door for vouchers, opening the door for taxpayer dollars to be used for private and parochial schools, which is unconstitutional. There are so many aspects to this bill that I think the public needs to be aware of that I would love for us to talk about this further Yes, going forward. absolutely. Yeah, so, I want to learn more. So look forward to a deep dive into Senate Bill 313. Um, and until then, you know you can always catch us at headsupmissouri.com and on iTunes. And if you have any questions, please email us or comments. We love to get feedback. Thank you, guys.